Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. So do we know the proper way to to say the title of the book, actually? Aversion? E-version? Ever, ever shown? Ever scion? Eavesdrun. <laughs> if I click this little play thing... Oh, you guys can't hear that. It's in my headphones. But it sounded like E-version. Was it an AI voice, though? I don't know that that counts. It definitely sounded like that, yeah. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Science Fiction. I'm Rob Wolf. And I'm Brenda Weiser. And this is the Inside Out Edition. Hey, Brenda, so how are you doing? I'm all right. When you say Inside Out, I'm instantly thinking of the Disney movie Inside Out, and that's definitely not what this book is about. So true, so true. So the title of the book that we're going to discuss by Alistair Reynolds is Eversion. And that means, apparently, I learned from from the book, turning something inside out. So in the course of the book, we learn why that word is important. But that's why I thought that would be a good name for, for this edition of the podcast. Yeah, so we're definitely not talking about our emotions. No emotions today. We're talking about turning things inside out. Yeah, right. Although there are there are some emotions, I think. The main character is confusion and emotion. It seems like he's he's in a state of confusion, this character Silas Code, who is the medical officer on an expedition. And what's very interesting about the story is that the expedition keeps changing around him. It starts out that they're on a tall ship, and then the form of transportation changes, the location changes. They're on a tall ship, I guess, near the South Pole, I think. And then they're on, I think, is it a steamship next? And then a hot air balloon. It keeps changing. But all the while, Silas Code is the medical officer. But he seems to be losing his grip on reality and as, as he tries to figure out, wait, no, it's not a steamship. It's a hot air balloon. Wait, no, it's not that. He is confused. Oh, my goodness. There is a lot of confusion in this book. That is, it is, I don't want to give it anything away. 
but it, it makes it a puzzle. So I guess maybe Alistair can help us unravel the puzzle without ruining the story for our listeners. So, so let's get him on the line. All right, let's do it. So the book that we're going to talk about today is called Aversion by Alistair Reynolds. Reynolds is a former research fellow at the European Space Agency. He's been writing fiction full-time since 2004 and has 19 novels and more than 70, that's seven zero, short stories to show for it. His work has been shortlisted for the Hugo, Arthur C. Clarke, and Sturgeon Awards, and he's won the Seun, Sideways, European Science Fiction Society, and Locus Awards. His stories have also been adapted for stage and television. He joins us via Skype from his home in Wales. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you so much. And we know that there's a time difference there, but you said you're a night owl. So yes, I am. I shouldn't be, but I am. Uh, <laughs> just stay up too late. That's when you get your writing done. No, that's when I go down the you know the YouTube wormhole of sort of looking up stuff and realizing an hour's gone by and I should be in bed. Got it. Well, how how are you this evening? How is South Wales this evening? Good. Yeah, no, it's been a really nice day today. We've had some very changeable weather over the last week or so, but it's been lovely today. I had a nice run earlier on. About five o'clock, I went for a little run and it was beautiful with the um, kind of autumn colors coming in and a bit of blue sky. Yeah, it was lovely. And I had a pretty good day's work as well. Did some good writing. So uh, on the whole, a good day. Oh, fantastic. Okay. Well, now you can rest your mind by talking about uh, a book that's already done, that's set in stone now. Although it's interesting because the book Eversion is in a way a story all about not being set in stone because the narrative keeps going through different iterations. And each iteration, it struck me, it could almost be its own standalone story if you took it to the end. And each version is a little different, but it has some things in common. I mean, they're the same characters and they're on an expedition and I think in all the iterations, they're in search of something called the edifice. But Brenda and I were sort of struggling with how to describe it without ruining the story. So we are going to throw that to you and say, how do you describe the story? Let me ruin it for you. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I, I, about, um, I guess about two years ago, I was sort of casting around for what I would, what I would write next for, for my next novel. And I really wanted to write something that was very much a standalone story because a lot of my books are kind of connected to other things and sequels and whatnot. And um, I sort of felt I was I had enough of that for the time being, and I wanted to do you know a nice ship in a bottle sort of story where it, it, it's a thing unto itself. And I also liked the idea of doing um, a kind of gothic horror story in in a science fiction mode. And that was the sort of inception for it. And uh, I mean, it's safe to say the book that eventuated was pretty different than the thing I had in mind when I when I first had the idea. It, it certainly went in a different direction. That that almost always happens. You know, I can I can say this without without a spoiler. The book moves through these sort of narrative modes where we're in we're reiterating sort of scenes from a, from an adventure where a, a certain crew on a certain ship are in quest for a, for a mysterious object. And the very first of these, it's on a sort of sailing ship around the year 1800. And then a little bit later, we're, we're on a, a, a slightly more advanced uh, a steamship and then, then, a, then an airship. 
And what I had hoped to do, and my plan when I was thinking about the book was that I was going to kind of recap the entire history of science fiction in about uh, some ridiculously ambitious number of episodes that I was going to do. It was sort of at least seven or eight that I had up on, on my whiteboard. You know, we were going to start in a kind of Mary Shelley, Edgar Allan Poe mode, and then it was going to go into sort of Jules Verne, and then maybe a bit of H.G. Wells, then the sort of early pulp sort of thing. And then I was going to do Between the Wars science fiction, sort of uh, Edmund Hamilton, sort of real sort of classic space opera pulp stuff. Then it was going to be a bit of Robert Heinlein, and then it was going to be Arthur C. Clarke, and then Asimov. And then a bit of sort of 60s new wave was going to come in. I, I mean, you can you can see where this was going. It was it was a really silly idea. And w- once I started writing the, the book, I realized that there was no way I could bring sufficient variety to the craft to, to make make those episodes work. And more than that, I mean, how many readers would would be um, sufficiently invested in, in the, the field of science fiction to, to, to even know about those sort of different time periods? So I cut it down drastically. I think it's uh, it's kind of four or five uh, by the time uh, we get to the finished product. Well, I definitely had that feeling, especially in the beginning. It felt like a bit of a Jules Verne, very early science fiction story. And it certainly felt as the technology evolved that we were going definitely through phases although I didn't necessarily correlate it exactly with science fiction, but certainly advances in technology. Yeah, it doesn't map precisely onto real world history because we get into some uh, kind of steampunky stuff at points. But again, that, that's because I'm playing with, I suppose, the the, the, the modes of the genre that, that, I, that I had in mind initially. But yeah, the technology also advances. So we start in a very um, a sort of Napoleonic period. And then we jump forward about 50 years and they've got steam power. And then we jump forward a bit a bit later, maybe uh, maybe 50, 70 years, and they've got airships and, and, and wireless. And all the while this is happening, there's also this sort of little bit of foreshadowing that, that goes on with, with my character Silas, where he's kind of trying to write a, a manuscript. And it's a kind of form of entertainment that he's doing for himself, but also for the for the people on on, on the expedi- expedition in each iteration. And as we progress with the story, we, we realize that in some respects, what he's writing in any given iteration somewhat anticipates what's about to happen in, in the next bit. So it's a, there's a little bit of the past bleeding into the present, the future bleeding into the present. Absolutely. Actually, it made me think that it was sort of a story about storytelling, too, because his fictional inventions in his story, as you've said, in the next iteration, they become the tech that they actually use. And I thought, isn't that every science fiction writer's wish that you envision the technology and lo and behold, you were right and it, it emerges? Yeah, and I think initially, again, a lot of the ideas or intentions I had for the book sort of mutated along the way. But when I started it, I was thinking about that story about Mary Shelley and her friends telling ghost stories in Switzerland or wherever they were. And I, I thought, wouldn't it be fun if they sort of entertained each other with sort of... Um, fabulations, not necessarily ghost stories, but uh, some some sort of speculation. But reality itself starts to echo what, what the, the, the stories they've been telling. And then we start be, maybe getting little hints that uh, what we think is reality is maybe not not entirely the case. But for me, it was also, it was also fun just to 
to put an, a writer into a narrative for the, for, for the first time for, for me. I've never done that before. And of course, there's a Stephen King does it a lot with his novels. There's a, there, there are often sort of proxies for himself, I suppose, in his in his horror stories. And I've al- I've always liked that. I never I never sort of thought it was self indulgent. I always I always enjoy reading reading stories about writers and getting a, the writer's insights into a particular situation. So I thought, why why not make this this character a writer, or at least a, a, he's attempting to write to be a writer, but then he's he's faced with this this critic who keeps popping up in, in all the iterations, and uh, she seems intent on taking the wind out of his sails each time by sort of pointing out all the things that are wrong with his manuscript. Well, actually, I, I did wonder if Silas Code was you, because he is scientifically minded. When I saw your bio, I was like, wait, oh, you've, you've worked with a science researcher, and you're also a writer, and Silas Code is both those things. So I wondered if we could talk a little bit more about Silas. You know, when we first meet him, he's fascinated by this device called a, I guess it's pronounced trephination brace. Yes. And he performs this creepy procedure, or I describe it as creepy. He doesn't think of it as creepy. He seems thrilled to be able to do it, but he drills a hole in in one of the character's skulls to relieve pressure from fluid. Could you just tell us a little bit about Silas? And of course, he he evolves through the iterations of the story. So I guess every time you talk about anything, it's a bit of a challenge. But why did you choose him to be your narrator? When when I start writing a novel, I rarely have a a sort of clear sense of the the, the sort of narrative voice that I'm going to use or the primary character. In this case, it's a first person viewpoint. And we're we're essentially in the head of Silas Code for for the entire novel, but I don't think all that was all that. It, it wasn't particularly clear to me when I first started thinking about it that, that the main character of this book was going to be this doctor, and he's uh, you're talking about how 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 much of him is is me. Well, I'm not. I'm, I've got no medical background, but I find that. Uh, doctors and medics crop up in my fiction a lot for some reason or another i find medi- I, I really enjoy reading medical memoirs i don't know why but i i i, I read a lot and i think hopefully there's I've, I've absorbed enough of that that i can maybe pull it off to some degree to, to make the character seem reasonably convincing in within the within the constraints of the narrative he's also got west country roots and that's the case for me because although i'm welsh and i live in wales I'm a bit, I've been all over the place, but half my family are from the West Country, and I always think you, there's not really you don't get enough West Country characters in, in in sort of fiction. So I like the idea that this guy was from the you know he's a provincial doctor, he's from Devon, but he's got Cornish roots, and a, you know I, I lived in Cornwall, family on my father's side are from Dorset, so I I feel a sort of strong attachment to the West Country, and I thought it would be quite fun to have this guy being he's from the west country and he kind of feels a little bit of um you know you know he's he's not from london he doesn't have the airs and graces of all the uh, the well connected uh, somewhat upper class characters who form the uh, some of the other figures on the expedition and he's got i suppose a little bit of an inferiority complex he thinks that everyone's looking down on him because he didn't go to the to the right medical schools i mean i didn't <laughs> again i don't want to draw um you know exact correlations, but I didn't go to Oxford or Cambridge. Uh, I, I had sort of like a normal British education, 
and so I, you know, I sort of felt that I could kind of identify with the way this guy might feel at times that he's he, he doesn't have the, the the right mannerisms to fit in at the sort of dinner parties that the captain holds. He's always, he's always slightly awkward, doesn't quite know the right thing to say. So I yeah, I certainly found once I started writing the book and gravitating to the idea that he was going to be the main character, I really enjoyed doing his bits and particularly his interactions with the other crew crew members. So I want to back up just a minute and ask a, a question on something that you had said, or you'd brought up a couple of things. One, that this character, so our, our main protagonist, is written from his point of view, first person point of view. But earlier we talked about that you have much of your career are these stories that are either series of books or multiple books that in a, or in stories and particular universes. How big of a shift was it to go from something that's that sprawling to the self-contained first-person view of one character? It's a mode of writing that I feel I've done a lot of it at shorter lengths. So as you, as you alluded to at the beginning, I've written quite a few novels, but I've also written a lot of short fiction, many, many short stories, but also quite a few novellas. I, I mean, I always feel when you write a um, when you write a short story or a novella, you can get closer to something that you're pleased with at the end of it. I'm not saying you achieve perfection, but it's almost impossible to achieve, get anywhere near it with a novel. There's so many parameters, you know, so many things that can go wrong with a novel, so many plates that you have to keep juggling in the air. It, it's a wonder that any any novels succeed at all. But when, you, when you're writing something that's more contained, 20,000 words, you've got a shot at getting it polished and, and at least satisfying within within the sort of terms of reference that you you had when you first thought of the idea and this story it's about i don't know 80 to 90 thousand words so it's a it's it's not a short novel but by the standards of some of the um silly books i've written and and you know science fiction and fantasy doorstoppers it's actually quite concise so my sort of way of looking at it was to go into it more with the mindset that i was writing a long novella because I knew that was achievable. And I thought I can really home in on the, the main character and maybe do some of the character work at novel length that I feel I've sometimes done in shorter works. And I always feel that not novellas, you know, they can be 40,000 words. And I've written some that were 45, 50,000 words, and then I've cut them back to be novellas just to just to fit a, a market. Um, that's my... Uh, my grandmother's mantelpiece clock going off there. <laughs> but I, I often feel that with a novella, you've al you've almost done two thirds of the work for a novel anyway. So with this one, it, yeah, it was um, yeah more about putting the getting the sort of the creative mindset of, of novellas and short stories and applying it to a novel. So not having multiple viewpoints, not having flashbacks, just concentrating on one one sort of narrative stream and really trying to in, invest myself in the character. And also... I made a decision somewhere in the in the writing of it that I would spend a lot more time in the first iteration than the, than the subsequent ones because I wanted I wanted to give myself the space to explore the relationships between these characters the way Silas interacts with the other people on the ship because I thought that all the stuff that happens later there wouldn't be any it, it wouldn't pay off unless I'd established that the these are people we care about yeah, I think that leads into a, a question that I had. What inspiration did you have for the cast of characters outside of Silas? The one thing I didn't attempt to do is 
put as many. So if you if you if you consider the first sort of segment of the story, which is set on a sailing ship, if you know anything about sailing ships, even small ones needed hundreds of people to run them. Uh, ridiculous infrastructure of, uh, of of people just to just to achieve the basic uh, rudiments of sailing. Uh, I, I don't want that many people in this narrative, so I'm actually going to prune it back a bit. I'm not going to have loads, you know, dozens of officers and people like that on the ship. I'm going to just core it down. And I read a, a really good book um, a, a year or two ago by Stuart Turton. I think it's called the It's the Devil in the Dark Sea. I think it's called. Uh, I'm sure you, you you'll find it. It's his second novel. It's it's crime meets historical fiction with a bit of metafictional playfulness to it and it's set on um on a sailing ship at the time of the uh the the, the dutch trading empire the, the the far east company so it's set a, a little bit earlier than eversion but i think in in the um the notes for the novel he mentions that don't go trying to reconstruct uh, an actual sailing ship from the from the, the characters he's used because he's deliberately used fewer so i thought that's a really good approach so i i just pared it down as much as I could. You know, I needed someone from the expedition. I needed the captain of the ship. I needed a foil for Silas to bounce off someone he can have conversations with. So I, I you know, as, as a midshipman, there's a somewhat more senior officer, and then he gets uh, friendly with the Mexican who's on the expedition, but he's actually sympathetic to Silas. One thing I'm not, as a writer, I don't have the the, the gift to be able to manage last large cast of characters i i know when it's done well i know writers who can do it well but as soon as i get above about five or six principal characters in the story i i can't uh i can't control them anymore so i need to keep things relatively contained so for me there was a choice just to keep the keep the character list relatively short and then just try and dive into them with you know with, with enough depth that one that we they were recognizable from iteration to iteration and also that hopefully the, the, the relationships that I establish mean that, that we have some investment in their fates. And the later iterations, they're operating machinery or forms of transportation that only require the main characters. So you conveniently adjust the technology that the, the red shirts, you know, the extraneous crew yeah. disappear. That's right. It's easier as, I, as it goes on. Yeah. And for the record, it's The Devil and the Dark Water. I just looked it up. The Devil and the Dark Water. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's really good as well. I, re I really uh, recommend it. I'd be interested in talking a little bit about Ada Kosil. Is that how you say her name? Yeah. She's the only, for most of the iterations of the story, she's the only female character. I mean, she's really basically the only the only female character you interact with. At one point, I think the captain uh, becomes female, but then yes. she's off stage. So again, it's so hard to talk about the story without kind of ruining the, uh, the layers, because as it goes through the iteration, sort of a mystery uh, becomes uh, re uh, resolved. But you had mentioned this character who's sort of the foil to Silas and is kind of needling him and critiquing the story. And in essence, she seems to be peeling away the layers of reality that you realize after that first iteration that they're not really on a tall ship. Maybe they're on a steamship. Oh, wait, are they? Aren't they? So she's yeah. a very interesting character, but she's also the only female character, too. So I, I think that's an interesting thing as well. So I don't know if there's if we could explore her for a little bit. 
you know, I think with, with a lot of the other books I've written, the gender balance is, if anything, it's it's more in the other direction. My first published novel, Revelation Space, had sort of three principal characters, and two of them were female. And you know, a lot of the a lot of the other books they've had sort of female leads, or or you know, a, lot, a, a number of you know, I would say um, important female characters who who are carrying the story. So it was a bit weird for me to go into this one and then realize that because of the sort of constraints of the historical setup that I had to have a, a ship with a predominantly male cast because as much as I wanted to bend reality, I had to accept that it wouldn't have been realistic to have sort of half the crew on a sailing ship in 1800s being being female. And it's also, it's also not um, ethnically diverse in any way as well, um, which kind of it, it goes against my... Um, proclivities as a writer as well. I like I like the idea of representation and, and, and equality and and forward thinking in, in literature. And I want to see everyone represented. And I was all of a sudden I was writing a book in which there was no representation and, and all the all the main characters doing stuff were men, burly men from Northern Europe. And uh, I think I almost forced myself to come up with a role for a woman on the ship. There were sort of um, antecedents for that. I, I, I was a big fan of historical adventure fiction. And I think going back to the Hornblower books and the Patrick O'Brien books, obviously, they, they were influences on the sort of naval trappings of the story. But even thinking back to um, Three Musketeers, uh, Milady de Winter, who is a foil for D'Artagnan and, and the other Musketeers, I really like that character. I like the way she's, it's not really clear who's side she on. Is she a villain or a, a good character? And I really liked her. And I think there's a little bit of her in, in well, she is called, literally called Milady Cossile in the first iteration. So that was my attempt to actually make the story more interesting for myself uh, as the writer by introducing at least one um, female protagonist. It would have been difficult for me to put many more on the story because of the, um, as I say, the, the, the sort of historical constraints. Because I was trying to write something that did sort of more or less feel like it was 1800 in the real world, even though it sort of gets into sort of Edgar Allan Poe or um, Lovecraft territory. But I didn't, I didn't want anything that really broke the verisimilitude early on. Although we get, as the story progresses, we get little bits of intrusions of unreality sort of poking through. And Ada Cossile, she she obviously has knowledge that doesn't quite fit the time period. She refers to neuroscience or neurosurgery early on. Um, and she kind of goads Silas with little hints that she knows far more about what's going on than, than, than he does or any any of the other members of the crew. So, the re, you know, the reader might initially think perhaps she's a time traveller. Perhaps she she's she's not from 1800 after all. She's from the future, and that's why she's got this sort of slightly advanced knowledge that she keeps letting go. But obviously, a slightly stranger setup than that, as we as we find out later in the book. But yeah, for me, it was just it was fun to in, once I included her, it, it felt fun, and I look forward to writing those scenes where she was kind of needling Silas, but at the same time, he quite fancies her, and the more he the more she sort of as a go at him, the more he's sort of intrigued by her. <laughs> It's true. It's sort of like you don't know, is she his enemy or is she his friend? You kind of go back and forth. You're like, is she undermining him? Is she controlling him? Is she trying to help him? 
tease him. I mean, it's a little bit of all those things. So you keep us on our toes. We don't really know what her role is. At some point, I thought maybe she's the puppeteer. You know, she's the one she's the one really telling the story. You know, it feels like he's somehow in the driver's seat because whatever he imagines occurs in the next iteration. But then you think, wait, no, maybe she's in the driver's seat. And it's very interesting. I think the kind of a good lead into you know, the time periods. We talked a little bit earlier about how this originally started as this almost homage to the different timelines and eras of science fiction. And then you needed to scale back a little bit. And we yeah. just talked about some of the challenges with the characters in choosing different time periods. I'm curious, how did you choose? Like, what was some of the reasoning behind the, the time periods you chose to put in the book? One of my favorite writing tools is a big whiteboard in my office. When I was a scientist, every office had a whiteboard and you just sort of stand up and brainstorm with colored pens. And I don't know why, for me, that's still like a really good way to sort of diagram out things and figure my my way through problems and um, plot holes. So I, I, I just, way at the start, I just sort of blocked out different time periods that I wanted to get into with this book. And I gave each one a sort of shorthand by which I, that, that was this kind of style of the writer that I would be attempting to emulate for that time period. And some of them, there was more than one writer. And as I said, it was, it was too ambitious and it would have made the book unwieldy and probably the reader would have lost patience very quickly. Um, with a repetitive nature of going through these um, these time loops. But I, I sort of gravitated to the periods that I thought I was most interested in writing. Um, so I have a natural interest in, I love Napoleonic era fiction, as I was talking about the Musketeers, but also Patrick O'Brien novels, like the, the, the books that they made the film Master and Commander out of. I think they're fantastic. So that was one time period. And I, I also like sort of late late Victorian adventure fiction and also early, 19, early 20th century Victor, uh, adventure fiction. Um, sort of Robert Louis Stevenson uh, shading into Conan Doyle. So I thought that'll do for the second bit with the steamship and all that, even though that maybe we're more around 1850. So it's a bit maybe a bit of Jules Verne coming in there. And then it was going to be an H.G. Wells bit, but that, that never really happened. And I think I don't really, I don't think I could do Wells well enough to pull that off. And then we get into a sort of sort of 1920s, 1930s Indiana Jones sort of scenario where they're in an airship trying to find a, the Sims hole or the Symes hole, which is this real theory or conspiracy theory, if you like, that was very uh, certainly did the rounds about 100 years ago. The idea that if you went to the north or south poles of the Earth, there was actually a way into the Earth's interior, the hollow Earth. And people wrote crazy amounts of sort of pseudoscience and and fantasy fiction based around these ideas obviously completely debunked but i thought that would be fun to play with because in each mode we're kind of getting closer to this edifice finding out the true nature of it and i thought well by the time we're actually going into the hollow earth we're kind of getting quite close to the you know, the essential truth of what's really happening. So that was fun. And then again, I years ago, I read a book about airships. And I think I can kind of wing that. I know enough about how airships operate. And I put a lot of them into one of my earlier novels, Terminal World. So I guess I was just drawing on the same sort of interest in, in sort of airship technology for that one. And then we kind of go into, um, well, we, we kind of jump around a bit. But um, there's another mode in the novel, which is what I think of as kind of pulp science fiction space opera, which is really me indulging my deep affection for sort of 1950s science fiction. So it's a, a conscious homage to films like 
Forbidden Planet, This Island Earth, and also sort of early Star Trek, I suppose, like that. Uh, and, and then some of the sort of literary science fiction of the time, like Doc Smith, and it's all about, um, you, you know, you don't you don't have alloys, you have plasteel, and you don't have glass, you have sort of, you know, metaglass or something like that, and grav plates and tractor beams and all this sort of stuff. So it's the, it's all the sort of ludicrous paranoia, um, paraphernalia of sort of mid, mid-century space opera that I absolutely love. And it's really done out of love rather than contempt. I hope that comes through. I, 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 it, it's not a type of science fiction that I want to write in, in sort of straight speculative terms, but I love sort of inhabiting it for the purposes of that kind of thing that, that I can do with inversion. And then there's another narrative mode where we're kind of in reality in, in, in something like somewhere like the mid 21st century and it's a world that well i was thinking about spacex space sort of entre- entrepreneurs like musk and bezos how they're able to do things now with all, with all their money and i thought well maybe in in a few decades it wouldn't be ludicrous that someone like that could could fund a, an interplanetary expedition and and sort of do it without any involvement from governments or sort of in national or transnational space agencies and kind of get around all the sort of re- regulations about biocontamination protocols and things like that. I'm not. I'm not endorsing that in any way. I just thought it might kind of could happen. So that that's the kind of I call that the base reality where we kind of really get get to grips with what's happened to Silas and the crew. But a built accreting around that is more sort of you know. Then we got back into this weird stuff. <laughs> does that does that help? <laughs> I think it does help. And it's actually, it's really interesting when we talk about this idea that history repeats itself, right? Just the the themes of having potentially a wealthy person who's funding an expedition to some unknown treasure or unknown thing. It is kind of fun to kind of, fun and frustrating <laughs> to see that, yeah. that, that repetition. <laughs> You know, way back in the sort of 30s and 40s, there was a lot of science fiction written about going to the moon. And one of the, one of the sort of standard assumptions of, of sort of science fiction of that era was, was that moon rockets would sort of be built in backyards by sort of private entrepreneurs. And that's not how it happened. Of course, it was done by NASA, uh, a vast government federal project involving tens of thousands of scientists and engineers across the country and global cooperation as well to make it happen so everybody sort of said well that all, all that old science fiction was a load of rubbish you know because they got it completely wrong and it wasn't done by guys building rockets in their backyards but now we kind of do have guys building rockets in their backyards and doing it outside of any sort of government framework so in a way it's what is that weird thing where science fiction some, some you know it suddenly looks like it's right again it suddenly comes around again and we think oh actually maybe Heinlein wasn't completely mad after all he, he kind of got kind of got it right. It just took another 50 years to catch up with him. I like how you make the connection between the robber baron era, because that's what it feels like in the beginning, where some rich dude is funding his expedition and could care less in a way for the health and safety of the people around him. And then connecting it to our current billionaire class who are doing their own thing. And one wonders if they're cutting corners in ways well that... uh, yeah i mean you know just i'm i'm an astronomer i'm a kind kind of backyard astronomer guy and um just the idea that you can sort of fling sort of 40,000 communication satellites up into low earth orbit without any kind of oversight and sort of ruin the day for 
astronomers around the world. It, it just doesn't sit well with me. So, I, yeah, I was just extrapolating that kind of stuff into the future, this idea that uh, if you've got sufficient money and, uh, you, you know, you can kind of bypass all sort of sensible regulatory frameworks and protocols and things like that. Should we just talk about the title for a moment? I mean, what does aversion mean? Brenda and I were discussing that a little bit beforehand. Like, what's going on there with that? I was on one of those trips down the, uh, not not the YouTube wormhole, but the, the Wikipedia rabbit hole one night, and I was just sort of noodling around following links. And I found an article about something called sphere reversion. And I was kind of aware that there's some interesting mathematics about things you can do with spheres. But this one caught my eye. The problem is, if you have a sphere, can you turn it inside out? And the answer is, yes, you can in a very sort of specialized mathematical way that doesn't really map onto what, you know, what we think of turning things inside out. But the, the, the problem of turning a sphere inside out is called sphere reversion. And it's a solved problem. Uh, it can be done within, within the definitions of, of, of turning things out inside out mathematically. Um, which is not the same as turning a, a football inside out. And I thought, wow, this is kind of interesting. And I, I, there, were, there, there was interesting computer graphics showing intermediate stages of sphere reversion on the article. And I, it just sort of struck me that this could be a good hook for a science fiction novel, a kind of governing metaphor where you could have things turning out, turning inside out. So I sort of, yeah, mentally said, I'll, I'll have that. And then... I guess at the same time, I was also thinking about this kind of self-contained gothic science fiction novel. And I thought, well, wonder, I wonder if I can bring the two things together in, in, in some way. And it just sort of happened in usual sort of not very well-planned organic fashion. I mean, I think very early on, I told my editor that the book was going to be called Eversion. So it had to be called Eversion. <laughs> and it had to have stuff about sphere aversion in it because I'd already, I'd already said what the title was, but, um, which is kind of how I work. It's not a book about mathematics. It's just that that idea sort of sits in the text from time to time. And it's something that engages one of the characters. He, he's very preoccupied with this idea of sphere reversion. And initially, it seems to be an abstract preoccupation that does him no good at all because he sort of neglects his own health while he's sort of fixated on trying to solve this mathematics problem. But it turns out to be much more critical to the survival of the characters than we, than we initially realised. I have to say, I might be in the minority, but I love the concept of having sphere aversion worked into this book and still might be in the minority, but I wish there was more done with it. I uh, yeah. I just wanted more of it. I, I, I Just more, more. More, 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 more. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I was struggling to, how do you describe these things? You know, I was looking at sort of diagrams of different stages of sphere aversion and trying to sort of put it into words. And it's really difficult which is why a lot of it in the book is sort of co caged in attempts by the characters to describe things that Dupin is describing um, ra rather than see sort of seeing it as it is. Um, so we're sort of getting second and third hand interpretations of what he's really seeing in his mind's eye. But I'm not a mathematician anyway, so, um, you know, um, I'd be well out of my depth if I went any deeper into it than, than I did. It works very well as a metaphor. It, it's as if Silas Code's insides are manifest outwardly. Like we're, we're seeing his psychological, his struggle, his internal struggle is what shapes the narrative. And we don't realize that 
Hope that's not giving too much away. Yeah, no, I'll take that. <laughs> and it's nice that the mathematician, uh, uh, what's his name, Dupin? Dupin, yeah, yeah. They need his human brain to solve this. There isn't. There doesn't seem to be another way. There's no AI um, to solve that, and they need to push him to his limits to to come up with the answer, which is. As Brenda says, I guess there could have been more, but it was enough for me to Google it and look at the pictures of sphere inversion, a version, and I couldn't get my mind around it. I was looking at it going, how is that? A sp- how is that inside out? So people should look and puzzle through what that means because it is a puzzle. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we could wrap up just talking about your writing career and how prolific you are. And I, I kind of just wanted to ask how you do it. I read somewhere that, I don't know if it's still ongoing, but you have or had a 10-book and 10-year contract with Orbit. I mean, that's quite a pace. And, you know, if you've already have 19 novels under your belt, what's the secret to your abundance? I'd, I always wanted, I wanted to be a writer. I didn't envisage necessarily a full-time career as a writer that just sort of happened along the way and there's never been any real plan to it I've always just written uh I enjoy well I enjoy finishing things I often enjoy finishing them more than I enjoy the actual sort of slog of actually getting you know getting the creative work done but finishing and polishing fiction is really rewarding and there's a kind of buzz from it so I always want to write another short story or another novella because I want that buzz of of completing something so for me there's a natural cycle that drives me to always be thinking about some new piece of science fiction that i'm hopefully going to write in the future and it's sort of i mean i'm i'm on my 19th or 20th or 21st book depending on whether you count collaborations and things i've done outside of the the sort of normal contract and i've done that over 22 23 years so it's not even a book a year and, you know, there's an awful lot of time in a year if you focus. I mean, I'm the world's worst procrastinator. I'm not a sort of workaholic lunatic who does nothing but write. I'm far from that. But I do try to be focused and productive when I'm in writing mode. So I tend not to sort of, you know, I've said this many times, but I, I, I work in an environment. I don't have the Internet in my writing environment. I haven't had that for 15 years or so. I try and arrange my life so that when I'm in my writing space, writing is the most interesting thing I can do rather than sort of be surrounded by other distractions. And although there are days where I don't really feel like writing, you know, I just push through and I'm glad I did. And I'm always glad when I finish something, even though I often curse myself for saying, why did you know, why did you agree to write this story for so-and-so or do, do this to this, this schedule? And, you know, there's a lot of grief along the way, but at the end of it, I've produced something and I'm pleased that it exists in the world. And at the end of a year, I've usually written another novel or I'm or I'm some way in advanced with another novel. You know, it's a, it's a really satisfying thing to have produced a novel. I, I love the point where it's a done thing and it might need some polishing, but it's essentially an artifact that exists that didn't exist six months ago or a year ago. And I, and I, and I just love the, um, you know, the process of then getting the, the first inklings of another idea or an itch or, you know, something that I, that I need to scratch that might turn out to be another story or another novel. And luckily that's, that well hasn't dried up. I still, I still find, you know, I still spend an inordinate amount of time just daydreaming about ridiculous science fiction stuff. Cause that's what I love. 
and, I, and I'm in the blessed position that I can afford to write. I'm a write enough that there's, you know, the marketplace exists for me to continue writing science fiction, which is nothing that you can take for granted. And I've, you know, in, in the time that I've been writing science fiction, I've seen many really good writers come along and produce really great science fiction that for one reason or another hasn't connected with a, with a with a readership and it's not because of the quality of the work it's just bad luck bad timing and i just had pretty good timing pretty good luck early on that uh, enabled me to get onto this pattern of you know maybe writing a book a year and i just hope that i can continue to do it it's not it's not some superhuman feat of creativity by any means it's just a lot of daydreaming a lot of bashing my head against keyboards and, and sort of making mistakes and backtracking and think, why did I write that? You know, why did I do that stupid thing when I could have done this six weeks ago and saved myself all that trouble? You know, my mantra is, you know, slow and steady wins the race. So if you just write continuously throughout the year when you're able to, it, it's sufficient. And most of the creative people that I, I, I like and admire for myself they tend to be on the on the prolific side you know i, lo I love neil young um and he's 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 just astonishing astonishingly prolific and has been for sort of 50 60 years i like stephen king again you know he's always seems to be refreshing his his sort of creative well wellspring all the time trying new things sort of not not necessarily being confined to one little area of the genre he, he's he's willing to try different narrative modes and be playful and I, I admire that and I, I, I for me that's something I, I like the thought of doing as well so so long as I'm able to keep writing I will you know I don't I don't sort of feel spent you know I feel like there's 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 hopefully uh, more to come sounds great I love your attitude it's very it seems very <laughs> relaxed and I can relate to all those things of like oh why didn't I think of that six weeks ago and I know yeah so that's uh, that's great. And I, I today for me is a momentous day. My agent put the first novel that I have agented on submission today. So, oh, fantastic! So I hope Yay. it. Yes. Yeah. Well done. I hope the timing is right for me. Yeah. Uh, I know. Yeah. We, we shall see. Maybe some of your good timing and good creativity and good writing will it'll rub off on me through the through I the Skype yeah. airwaves. <laughs> We've covered a lot of ground today, so I think this has been, you know, this has been pretty good. Well, thank you so much. Uh, this has really been so much fun, Alistair. Thank you, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I um, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Brenda. Thank you so much for being here. So we have been talking with Alistair Reynolds, whose novel Aversion came out in August from Orbit. I'm Brendan Wesser. And I'm Rob Wolf. Marshall Poe is the editor and founder of New Books Network. And Leanne Wilson is the co-editor. The music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. Please subscribe to the show and consider giving us that five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps others find our show and, you know, gives us the warm and fuzzies. Thank you so much for listening and we hope to see you soon. Oh, also, speaking of pronunciation, is it aversion or eversion? Well, I, um, <laughs> I'm not sure I've ever heard anyone say it. I mean, to me, um, yeah, I guess it was ev eversion.
Okay. Uh, but I, that's not really authoritative. That's just that's just what I say. <laughs> if, if now I'm gonna get now I'm gonna, I don't know how I'm gonna say it. <laughs> yeah. You planted a seed. I would have just said it. I well. I know. Uh, I yeah. Now we're just gonna say it like all different ways. Ever, like, yeah, Eve yeah. Version? Eve version. Eve Eve version. Yeah. Ever yeah. shun. We can do that too. Here we go. Yeah. Uh, all right. Let's. We'll give it a shot. <laughs>